Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Girl Like of the Podcast. You can probably hear my squeaky chair in the background that Maddie's trying to make me get rid of, but I'm currently protesting, so... It's a serious problem. It, it is, and look, like, we are maybe, like, a month away from a new chair, so I just... I feel, I feel a certain way. Wait, can I just quickly see what it looks like? Okay, she's ugly. She needs a makeover. I'm picturing like an old antique wooden chair. No, I mean, trust me, we have a lot of those and they're probably like a lot more quiet. Okay, look, let it rise. Oh, it's like an office chair. Yeah. Wow. I I know, it even has a little back scenario. She swivels. She gives a little turn. She models. That's not what I expected. I think we just need to get you, like, in a straight jacket every time we record and just, like, tie you to the chair. (laughs) And, like, this is also, like, us just apologizing for Sam's squeaky chair. If you've heard it in any other episode, like, we're we're genuinely sorry about it. Like, we're working on it. You know, we're in pandemic times. We're not, like, you know, together in the studio yet. But we will one day, and it'll be the most flawless audio you've ever heard. But, you know, just cut us some slack. I would like to flag the time that your mom called you during our recording. So I would just like to say, you know, I'm not the only one with external noise. Okay, listen, here's the thing, though. She called me. It happened twice. You know what I did? Now I go on Do Not Disturb every episode, okay? You live, you learn, you fix it. But... You have yet to fix it, okay? Fine. Don't come at me. Fine. Wait. So, New York Times put out today this epic game. Basically, they show you a picture of a neighborhood, like a little Google image, random neighborhood somewhere in the U.S., and they have you guess, did people there vote for, overwhelmingly so, for Trump or for Biden? And so you, like, hit, you know, whichever your guess is based on the context clues, and then they tell you, a, if you were right or if you're wrong, and then also what the percentage of that precinct was in terms of the vote. So say like that precinct voted like 65% towards Biden, they would like tell you that or like vice versa, right? You know, it's like 80% of this precinct voted for Trump. And so they tell you and it's just really interesting. What was the common theme aesthetically for the houses for each each candidate? What'd you say? It was... It was yeah, tricky. Yeah, was it hard? I... Did you get them wrong? I got a 70%. Okay, okay. Challenging. So not my best grade. Yeah. There were a few that really flipped. You can't always judge a book by its cover because there were some rule images that I was like automatically, like this is definitely Trump country. And some of them I definitely got right. And others totally threw me. You know what this game makes me think of? Totally yeah. unrelated, but similar vibe, I would say. I went to this baby shower and there was a game that we played called porn star or labor stop it (laughs) and they were faces they were faces of all these women and they're all just like either crying or like literally fully orgasming that is and you can only look at their face and you had to guess if they're in labor or if they're a porn star 
And like they're trick, they're just, some of them are just trick questions and they like do that purposely. Like no one's supposed to get all of them right. Like they're hard. That is honestly the most wild baby shower game I have heard to date and I love it. Like that is a baby shower I want to go to. That is a fun time. It was hilarious. I loved it. But we should definitely introduce our guests because we literally have a rock star on the show today. Like I didn't know we were going to get like an actual pop star rock star on the show. I genuinely like the second we booked her I was fangirling and then I haven't stopped fangirling and I don't think I'm ever going to because like literally like I want to beat her and her name so many people with cool names but like she fully lives up to it and exceeds it oh beyond and so like I guess we should tell you but like drum roll literal please so here we go so we are super excited to introduce vice admiral rocky bono md just like comma MD, FYI. So she literally is a retired vice admiral and a trauma surgeon. I would make that my stage name. Like Vice Admiral Rocky Bono. Like that's my stage name. Epic. Epic. Like you said, a name like that is just worth a thousand words in terms of personality and chutzpah and pizzazz and everything and like she just knocks it out of the park she is brilliant amazing inspiring and she walked us through so many important things as it relates to military and healthcare, and also covid and her work with washington state and getting that covid relief up and running so without further ado here's rocky So we are so excited to have you on the show. And of course, you know, we want to dive in. We want to start with an introduction. You know, you are this celebrated trailblazer. You've notched so many first in the field. I literally, I was looking through your resume as we were, you know, sort of pulling together and I was like, I don't know where to start. It is bananas in the best way. Oh my God. So you're the first woman surgeon in the military to hold the rank of vice admiral, the first female three-star admiral in the medical field in the history of the US Navy, as well as the first Asian American woman promoted to vice admiral. So you wouldn't mind sort of giving us a window into these experiences as firsts and a little bit of sort of background and color to, you know, your very, very storied career. Well, thanks. Well, first off, thanks for having me. This is really great. I was telling my daughters about it and I said, it really just sounds like fun. I'm just looking <laughs> forward to that. So that's, that's, that's awesome. Aww. So I appreciate the opportunity. People ask me, well, where did it start? How did you, how'd you know, how did you get started on this? And it wasn't entirely by accident, but it wasn't really scripted. And my father, who's a surgeon, he was at the University of Minnesota and he was doing his training. And my mom would let me wait up for him when he came home, even though he had late hours because I was the eldest. And so uh, one night he came home and my mom was saying, oh, he's so late. And I said, yeah, but I wanna see him. So he would usually give me some of his supper and then I'd go off to bed. Um, so I told him, I said, you know, daddy, when I grow up, you know, I wanna work in the, in the hospital so that I can see you every day. You know, and so I was going through all the things that I thought I could do in the hospital. And he goes, well, wait, he goes, why don't you wanna be a doctor? And I said, I didn't know girls could be doctors. And he says, you can be anything. You can be anything. Aww, you know, and I was just like, I just, I, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. You know, I don't know. It stuck with me. I had two younger brothers at the time. And I probably made their lives really miserable <laughs> remembering what my dad said that I can do anything. And so, you know, so I decided to, you know, pursue medicine. And, and I went into surgery. And, you know, several years, many years later, when I had my oldest daughter, she was asking me, she goes, Mom, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, I'm in the Navy, and I'm an officer, and I wear this uniform, but, you know, not very many people can wear this uniform and serve. So I'm one of the few because, you know, there's only 300,000, you know, people in the Navy that actually serve in uniform. I said, so I'm, I'm really, really lucky because I get to wear the, the uniform to represent our country. And, and so I said, but at the same time, I'm also a surgeon and I get to help people and I see people every day and I listen to what, what's bothering them. And then if I can help them, then I'll take them to the operating room. And I was explaining, you know, what was going on in my day and how every day I got to do something different and help people. 
and you know, she's like listening to me and she's like totally dialed in. I'm thinking, oh, I'm such a good mom. <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking I've got this and I'm finishing up telling her what I do. And she goes, mama, can boys be doctors too? <laughs> you know, oh and I just, <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh. You know, from the time my dad told me yeah. that I could do anything to the time my oldest daughter said, you know, can boys be doctors too? I realized, you know, there was some kind of shift that had happened there. So that's been kind of the story is that I started out just believing that what my father told me that I could do anything. And then by virtue of doing those things and raising my daughters, you know, somewhere along the line, I'm hoping that they realize that they can do anything too. But, you know, I, I, I did go into medicine. I did go into surgery and I was the first female to graduate from the surgery program, but I was a second woman to start. So I knew there was a little bit of pressure on me to really get just through that program, just a little bit. Yeah. And so, you know, I was deployed to the first Gulf War, came back, and started getting into not only medicine and taking care of people and really getting into the, the art and the science of my, my surgical field, but also realized that I wanted to change healthcare. I wanted to really, you know, redesign it because it just didn't seem to be working for patients. And I thought, shouldn't we be here for the patients? <laughs> you know. So I, I started getting involved with leadership jobs and running things and trying to fix things. And the more I would do that, the more people would give me more jobs. And pretty soon I was, I was running hospitals and I was running a bunch of hospitals. And then I ended up running the largest organization in, in military medicine, where I actually oversaw army medicine, Navy medicine and air force medicine. So the whole thing and helped, helped make sure that we had a healthcare system for nine and a half million people that served the, the military. And then after I retired, I went to go work with Governor Inslee in Washington State with the pandemic. That was almost literally almost a year ago this this March. And after helping out there for nearly seven months, about six and a half, seven months, I'm now working with Viking Cruise Lines as their chief health officer to help them find a way to safely restart cruising, you know, taking a, a real strong public health approach to it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny you said that because I... I was just like watching the news the other day randomly and they were talking about, you know, cruise ships and how they're trying to like figure out how to get going. And I totally forgot about the cruise ships of it all when the pandemic started. And like, I'm here, I'm in the Bay Area and like they had all those ships coming in to the Bay yeah. and they just like were stuck in there. It was just like, looked like such a nightmare. I totally forgot about that part of everything. I know they were hit extremely hard. And not only that, I mean, I've really grown to have this really keen appreciation. I mean, not only did the, the cruising industry take a hit on this, but think about the port cities that they visited. I mean, all of those places, if they had any kind of reliance on tourism, then yeah. this really hit them hard. And, oh, yeah. you know, when I started looking at it through that lens, I thought, well, you know, if we can figure out how to do this safely in the cruise line, then that can be a model for other businesses who are trying to find out, you know, figure out a way to restart safely. Because I don't want to scare anybody, but the pandemic is going to be here a little bit longer. It's not going to be over, you know, just like the summer. I think you know, with all the things that are happening with the variants and, you know, hoping that we get all the vaccine out there as quickly as possible. I think we're going to be living with the pandemic for a little bit longer. And I don't know that we can wait just for the pandemic to be over before we can actually get back to living. Right. So I'm hoping that the work we do in Viking will kind of help others figure out, you know, what, what yeah. a safe way to do it. Yeah. Because like, like you said, the port cities, but just tourism in general, like cities and countries that, you know, bank on that money that comes in from tourism every year. And that is like their main economy. So, yeah, I mean, starting cruise ships, I mean, people, that would probably be the last thing people would think that we do. But if, they, I know. if the cruise lines can do it, then that could open up so many doors for other you know, again, economies that bank on that tourism exactly. to really, like, survive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about, you know, the restaurants, the museums, you know, all these different things. And I mean, just just the cultural aspect that we're missing out on, too, because I think that was always something whenever I traveled, whether I traveled for my job in the military 
or whether I traveled for leisure or any kind of business travel, I always learned something about the places I went. Totally. Now, of course, in the military, I probably traveled to some places that people didn't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to go there to vacation. No, (laughs) but but it's still there. I'm sure those are even more enlightening places to go to. I'm a huge advocate of that too, and just travel and how important it is just for, you know, being a well-rounded person. Right. But talk about setting examples, right? You know, it's like setting examples on a business level, setting examples for women, setting examples, you know, in the military, there's a lot of platforms and, you know, intersections between them all. And it is always funny to me how much there is overlap, right? Like everything touches one another in this field. And I think that's kind of the perfect way to bring it back to sort of leading by example in terms of your role in the military. So you launched the Military Health Corps Female Physicians Leadership Course, which I will admit is a bit of a mouthful, apparently, now that I'm saying it out loud, right? (laughs) I love it. But the whole, you know, the idea of it is to encourage diversity and retain women physicians in the military. So I want to just dive in here, get a little bit more insight why did you start it? What is, you know, it's sort of mechanism for operating as well. Yeah. You know, that's, I think, well, it had to start with, I realized like when I was going through, there just weren't very many people like me that I could look up to and say, Hey, can you give me a hand? Can you help me figure out what this, you know, so I had to do a lot of learning on my own. I was really fortunate though. I had some really good mentors and most of them were male because those were the only people that were out there. But you know, my father was, you know, he still is, you know, he's the first feminist I ever met. Don't tell him I said that. (laughs) Secret safe, promise. (laughs) But, you know, I spent my entire career looking around, looking at people and observing to see, okay, who, who does this well? Who, who figures out these challenges, problem, challenging problems and who works well with people to make change happen? And I would look at them, I would study them, and I'd go up to them and I'd ask them, hey, can you help me? Help me understand a better way to make some of these things happen. So I've always been blessed to have people that would help me out. But when I was coming through, I realized there just weren't that many women. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of sober. I mean, I went to medical school <clears throat> and there was like, there was like about a third of us were women. And when I went into the Navy, like I said, I was the only female in my surgery class. And, you know, there just, there just weren't a lot of women who were in medicine at the time. But I started seeing more and more women come through. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a way that we can kind of get together and share experiences. And, and really what I wanted to do when I, when I helped, you know, set this up was tell people you can do it too. It, it, it's okay. It, it's going to feel like it's personal sometimes. It's going to feel incredibly challenging. You're going to want to give up, but I'm here to tell you, you can do it. I know you can. I mean, just the fact that you decided to come to this course tells me you've already selected yourself. You, you are going to make it. And there are just a few things that, you know, that I wanted to share with them so that they would know you've got it within you to do this and you can do it very well. And it's just sometimes that reassurance that people need. And, and so as we started getting more and more people <clears throat> involved and we had more lectures and, and then I had a chance to meet, you know, these, these incredible, incredible professionals in, in the early start of their career. What's been so cool is watching them get to the senior levels and assume some of the leadership jobs and watching them do a fantastic job, you know? And I just think, you know, the more you can get different voices at the table helping to make a decision and helping to make something happen, the better it is. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, on another note, you also have held numerous leadership roles within the Department of Defense military health system. So can you kind of give us a little, you know, inside info on what that was like, what that role was, what even, you know, the Department of Defense does? (laughs) I know. Doesn't that sound daunting? It's kind of like, you know, (laughs) yeah, I know. (laughs) You know, so in there's a military tradition we have in the hospitals we run and in the hospitals that you see in the military, there's usually kind of a wall with everyone's picture. And what it'll show you is it's, it's who, who our bosses are. So in any military hospital, you'll see the picture of the president up at the top. And then you see the secretary of defense 
And then you see like the assistant secretary of defense, and then you see a bunch of these military people. And then in my hospitals, you'd see me like in the third, the third row down or something like that, or the fourth row down. And my, my husband used to take my girls to the hospital and they would come to pick me up and he'd, he'd point out and go, see, she's, she's only like, you know, the second or third for the president. Oh now it just looks like that yeah. on, on the wall. You're like, yes, <laughs> I'm number three to the president. I'm number <laughs> yes. three ranking. Thank you. I mean, it just <laughs> looks like that. There's a ton of other people between the president and me, but on the wall, we're just trying to highlight who the, you know, who the, the main leaders. Of. <laughs> no, no, definitely that. Yeah, yeah. take that and run with it. I, 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 I think that's I should fair. just stay with that, right? I should. Yes. And I guess that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about being in the military is realizing I was a part of something so much bigger than me. And what I did mattered. No matter what, I always realized that the people I was working for, the people I was serving, you know, the people in, in uniform and their families and, and the veterans, I always felt it's worth it. You know, for them, yes, I'll do this because it is worth it. And, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, by serving other people in uniform, that's serving people who they don't have to put on the uniform, but they do. And they don't, you know, they choose to go out in harm's way. I mean, those are the people I get to take care of. And I would tell my daughters that, you know, who else gets to take care of heroes every day? You know, so it was being in the Department of Defense was like taking care of heroes every day, no matter what their age, you know, even if it was, even if it was a, a young family with little kids, I mean, even those kids, they didn't choose to serve, but they're serving just as much as their parents are. Totally. Yeah. So serving in the Department of Defense was really helping to take care of people who were heroes. Totally. Yeah. To move on to our I Have a Stupid Question segment, we want to talk about a few things with you. And we want to start with this question of what is the Defense Health Agency, yeah. the, the DHA, parentheses? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Defense Health Agency was something that Congress actually put into law. And what Congress was trying to do was they said, hey, you know, healthcare is extremely expensive. Even though the military has done a really good job of controlling expenses and costs, we think that there is a way that we can get to even more savings. And with that savings, we can actually then look at, you know, expanding and getting more, you know, more state-of-the-art care for all of our, our beneficiaries. So they stood up the Defense Health Agency and it became the umbrella organization that Army Medicine, Navy Medicine, and Air Force Medicine all came together. So think of it like a big M&A, a big merger and acquisition. Before each of those, those Army Medicine had been independent and worked on their own, and Navy medicine was independent, and worked on their own, and then Air Force medicine. And what this did was come all together. And I mean, what we were able to do was find out that we all had common, you know, systems and, and processes and offices. And by, by combining them, not only did we save money, but we actually started collecting some really good data to show how we could improve the outcomes for our patients. You know, because remember, we were doing this to make sure that our patients were getting the benefit of it. So this was something that Congress had set up. And it was like really cutting edge when Congress set up Senator John McCain, you know, the, the former senator from Arizona, great leader. And he really saw this opportunity. He was the one that kind of spearheaded this before he passed away. So I really appreciate how forward thinking he was and how, you know, he had served in the military himself in the Navy. So he really had the best interests of everybody in the military. So the Defense Health Agency, DHA, was like the largest organization that we'd ever created to oversee a hospital. I had a budget of $50, $50 billion with a B a year. Oh, we took wow. care. <laughs> we took care. Casual. Yeah. Uh, we took care of nine and a half million people. And I oversaw through that we had 50 hospitals and over 300 clinics. And also part of the portfolio was the TRICARE Health Plan, which is a, a very large healthcare plan that we have for the military. It's both national and international. So it was kind of a it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, definitely. That is big intense one. to say the least. Lots of layers there. 
but so is the military health system as a whole. So could you explain what it is? Is it public? Who's it available to? So it's a federated system. It's a, a you know federated healthcare system. And there are other federated healthcare systems that you, you might not be aware of, like the Indian health system. Indian health system is an, another federated healthcare system. The secretary or the VA hospital is its own separate federated healthcare system. People think that the Department of Defense which has the military health system. So DOD and the military health system are together. They are separate from the healthcare system that the Veterans Administration has. So those are all different federated systems. And the military health Sorry, system so, is- So like active military members yes, work with the DHA the, and the Veterans yes. Affairs, Veterans Affairs. Okay. That is a separate, exactly. <laughs> no, no, that's great. No, that's perfect. So make me feel good because now I think now I feel like I described it well enough. You <laughs> so, did, you did. Because, because, you know, sometimes it's really, it's, it's confusing because, you know, if you serve, if you're in uniform, you're active duty. And so the military health system, the MHS is, is designed to take care of people in uniform and their families. And then if you spend 20 years or more in uniform and you retire, like I did, then you can still take, get care from the MHS and so can my family. So retirees and their families, people who are active duty in their families can get care from the military health system from the MHS. And on the veteran side, if you served in uniform for any length of time, but you didn't retire, then you can use the Veterans Health Administration. You can go to the VA. Now I could use the VA as well, um, but somebody who just served for five years can only use the VA and, and can't necessarily use the MHS. But more and more of the stuff we're doing now is bringing the VA and DOD and the MHS a little closer together because we have some of the same patients. After all, we're starting to develop, to develop the same electronic health record, which is huge. It's big. And then we've also realized that like what I did that Congress had me do for the DHA, you know, where I brought things together and kind of centralized some things and created this portfolio of shared services. We're also finding out that we have shared services between the MHS and the VA. So that way, the more that we can save there, the more we can put back into taking care of our patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to kind of bring things, you know, back to the civics realm, you know, the people who are here, like, let's talk about politics. And this is obviously all all involved, <laughs> but to kind of get back into the nitty gritty of like the politics of it all. What is um, the National Defense Authorization Act? That is a great question. So I had to take a civics class when I became the CEO of the DHA because I had to work with Congress so closely. So the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, is what happens is Congress gets together and they look across all of Army, Air Force, and Navy, and the Marine Corps. And they not only look at the healthcare services, but they look at how many aircraft carriers do we need? How many submarines? How many planes do we need? How many tanks do we need? How many people do we need to have in uniform to defend our country? And what are some of the emerging threats? And what are some of the research and development projects that we want to fund or that we want to make sure that we develop in order for our military to remain the strongest military in the world? And so what, it, what happens is the committees look at it on the House side. And once they put in everything, then they send it over to the Senate and then they put in their stuff. And then they have a joint session to look and say, okay, here's how much we can put into this NDAA and here's how much we wanna get out of it. So it's, it's our budget and every year Congress puts together this NDAA and they have to all agree on it. And it comes with a certain amount of money that then gets put into the Department of Defense so that we can do all the things that we need to do to protect the country. And sometimes it's a little more controversial than others in some years. And sometimes there's a little bit of horse trading that's kind of, you know, pretty, pretty high dollars. Like, you know, we can only do two aircraft carriers instead of one, you know, we can only instead of five and we got to buy a couple of more fighter jets, you know? So it's, and, and not only that, it's not only a yearly budget, but it looks into the future to say, okay, you know, how big is cyber? you know, how big is a cyber threat and what do we need to do to take care of our IT infrastructure? So the NDAA is 
what eventually it does is both sides of the house sign off on it and then it goes to the president. And once the president signs it, then money gets assigned to that. It gets distributed to the military services and the NDAA then becomes law. So whatever's in the NDAA becomes something that for the military is, is legal and binding. And we are, we are uh, obligated to make what happens in that NDAA happen. That's why it's so big. And, and, you know, and it takes a long time. This is when they're going to start working on the NDAA. They get signed off at the end of this year for next year's budget. Okay. And so under that umbrella, it's everything from like healthcare, aircraft carriers, yeah. weapons, everything. Everything's under there. The whole thing. Wow. Yep. It's the whole thing. So it's big. And I'm watching the numbers to make sure yeah. that, you know, that we can take care of our, our patients. And, and if, you know, the numbers change, then I have to make adjustments. I had to make adjustments on what we were offering and how we did that. And always trying to maximize the amount of care and the quality of the care for our patients at every turn. Totally. We always talk about like mental health when it comes to veterans. Do you guys absolutely try and combat some of that for active duty as well? Yeah, because it's not a surprise. Your mental health and your mental well-being is so important to the rest of you, right? And so we found out too with when the wounded warriors, you know, when they first started coming back from you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we recognized that after we got them better physically, they still had some ongoing challenges and we really needed to pay attention and kind of reframe, okay, behavioral health is, is real. I mean, this is a very real part of people's recovery and we, we have to do more dedicated and more thoughtful work in this area. So, you know, we had many benefactors who worked with the military to help us set up these centers like the Fisher House and the centers of the National Intrepid Centers of Excellence, where we could really bring more behavioral health expertise to help us figure out what is the best way of approaching this. And I think the what that experience taught me though is that there just there just aren't a lot enough behavioral health resources for anybody, whether you're in the military or not. It's really hard to get really effective and comprehensive behavioral health care in our country. And I think we need to pay attention to that because there are so many stressors out there. Yeah, but speaking of kind of continuous care, next avenue a little bit with COVID and healthcare. Let's oh, talk about yeah. COVID. Everyone's favorite topic. Oh my topic. gosh, oh my <laughs> gosh, yeah. Well, COVID, COVID has, had, has definitely left um, a mark on us and we are going to be feeling these repercussions for some time. So a little bit of background, when I was in the military, one of the things that I had done is we did these war games. And what we did were these war games where we said, okay, what is the worst case scenario and what do we need to do to make sure we're, we're responding in the right way? So one of the war games or one of our favorite war games was what if a pandemic happens? Mm, what do we need to do? <laughs> yeah. And so we would say, okay, the pandemic is going to come from here. It's going to spread this fast and it's going to affect this many people. We need to make sure that this hospital over here is ready to, to receive patients when they come in from the West Coast and then from the East Coast. And then we have to make sure that our borders are secure. So we would do these war games all the time. So I left the military and I heard about this novel coronavirus that was happening you know, over there. And I thought, oh gosh, this sounds like a war game. And so I'm looking, it wasn't called a pandemic yet. So I'm watching and it was in the fall of 2019. And I, I'm thinking, oh, this is this is really starting to go fast. And so- Oh boy, you caught it early. <laughs> yeah, well, then December, I'm starting to see it spill out. And now it's starting to go into Europe. And I'm thinking, oh, gee. And we always said in the war games that the primary mechanism of spread was going to be the airplane. I, you know what, I didn't think of at the time about the cruise ships though. I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> But it was, you know, we thought it was going to be the airplanes. And so sure enough, though, people were coming back from all this different travel and they were bringing the coronavirus in. So it was like December, it's really starting to heat up. And then February hits. And now 
we've got coronavirus here in the United States. One part of me was going, I wish I was still in uniform because I know what to do. I did the war games, you know, I, you know, we got to do this, this and this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then the other half of me was going, I'm so glad I'm not in uniform because this is going to be big. This is going to, this is going to be a heavy lift. And then just as I was thinking that, just as I was thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not in uniform anymore. That's when I got the call from Washington state. So I ended up running back to the gunfire again. So yeah. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, when they, when the governor's office called me, they said, here's, here's the situation and we need help. We need somebody who understands healthcare, has a deep understanding of healthcare. We need someone who's has an experience with crisis management, which is what you do in the military. And then we also need somebody who's had experience running large complex organizations and helping make change happen. So I thought, yeah, I guess I could do that. <laughs> you know, um, so, <laughs> resume checks out. Like, I might have some tools in the tool belt. <laughs> um, but I got there, and what was really neat about it was that I got there, and right off the bat, I could see that the state leadership and the healthcare system and the citizens of Washington are were so they were invested. I mean, that was what was so neat. I think that. Immediately, I could see that they had really strong leadership, and what was what was really needed was just kind of bringing the right kinds of energy together, and creating enough momentum that it could carry itself, you know, on its own and continue doing that. And it was just kind of making sure you connected the the right people to the right groups because everyone wanted the same thing. Everyone was trying to make sure that we took care of the healthcare workers, you know, the frontline healthcare workers who were most at risk. Everybody wanted that, and everybody wanted to make sure that whatever healthcare resources we had in the state of Washington, everybody wanted to make sure that we were using them to the best of our ability. And then at the end of the day, everybody wanted to save as many Washingtonians as possible. And when you when you start the conversation with, "Hey, these are the these are the same three things that I want to do," then you know the conversations were like, "Okay, well then, how do we get there?" You know, and it it what was neat was having these these interactions where we would say, okay, here are the things that we're trying to do and how do we want to get there? And I so it was so rare that I ever found somebody that said, well, we can't. You know, do you ever have those conversations where you're trying to solve somebody and everyone tells you all the reasons why you can't, but you can't because of this. You can't and we would just say, okay, well let's rephrase the question. You know, how do we get there? How do we make this happen? And so I, I was able to work with some really cool leaders and Governor Inslee himself, Mayor Durkin in Seattle, the public health leaders in Seattle King County and Yakima and all these places. It was fantastic being able to work with such engaged people. So a, a, a lot of really gratifying work. And I think that the other piece of it too was working at the state government level, which I had not done. I'd always worked at the federal and DOD level and I, I was kind of wondering, I thought, I wonder how different it's going to be working at the state level. Yeah. And I walked in, I thought, okay, it's familiar enough. I think I can do this. Yeah. So. Well, what was that like behind the scenes? I mean, I think just all of us are so used to everything we see on the news, just waiting for headlines, waiting to see what our local officials, what our state officials are going to tell us we can and can't do. Like, especially when you first got there. What is it like behind the scenes? Was it like, okay, mask mandates? What are we shutting down? Testing? What was it like, especially when you first got there in the heat of it all? Yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing. So when I got there, the governor had just signed the executive order that suspended all elective surgery so that they could make sure that they had enough PPE, right? So they were going to collect all the PPE so the front the frontline healthcare workers would be protected. And uh, this is something that I noticed at the state level, which is very similar to the federal and the DOD level. It is what people don't see is how, how agonizing it is for senior leaders to make a decision that they know is going to be something that people are going to feel very strongly about, like the masks, okay, wearing the masks. And I would tell people, I mean, okay, I'm a surgeon. I know that masks work. I wear masks in the operating room. Did you actually expect people to like be not okay with wearing masks? Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I was like surprised. I, they, I mean, like, they would go, they'd ask me because I'd go and travel around. I'd, I'd go with the governor and I'd go with the Department of Health people. 
to these various counties and people would say, well, we don't even know that masks work. And, and I would say, excuse me, I'm a surgeon, <laughs> you know, and the reason I wear a mask in the OR is not to protect me, it's to protect my patient. You know, I wear a mask so that I don't inadvertently breathe germs into my patient while I'm operating on them. And we know that the coronavirus is something that gets released in our, in our breath, in our respiratory system. So wearing a mask will certainly help prevent that, you know, spread, but it also helps people, you know, prevent inhaling it on this. So, you know, but, but we knew how hard it was going to be for some people to accept wearing a mask. Same thing with like shutting down gyms or restaurants or, or saying that gatherings couldn't be a certain size. And the thing that made it helpful was actually collecting the data and showing, okay, when we let this restaurant open and they had their bar open, the number of cases that went up in this county was up by this much. So we use data a lot to show people things, but making those decisions, what I found true at the state level, which is true at the federal and Department of Defense level, is that people spend a lot of time thinking about it and really trying to find, strike the right balance because they know how impactful this is. And, and I think that was the other thing working for the state that was so familiar and also very exciting and gratifying is that the leadership of the state were always working hard in the best interest of the people of the state. And I think over and over again, I think that's a piece that people don't see. They don't see how hard people are trying to work to strike that right balance. Yeah, I think it's sometimes it's so much an optics game, like even with the masks, right? Like you're fighting an enemy you can't see. So hard for people to understand until they saw perhaps data to understand, oh, this either works or it doesn't work. So try and convince someone to try something without sort of the proof in the pudding that feels relevant to them, I think can feel really heavy or confusing. You know, it, it, obviously there's complexities there to, to any optics game, but I think it speaks volumes to the data collection that you guys were able to do. So I'm kind of curious as to the story there. How, what mechanisms were in place to collect data? How did you guys do it? What was the approach like? So, you know, you just hitting on all these things because it was hard to get the data. It was totally hard to get the data. We wanted to try and say, okay, how many beds do we have across the entire state of Washington? How many ventilators do we have? And we couldn't. I mean, we'd have to do an Excel spreadsheet every day. And then people would have to submit their, you know, their Google spreadsheet or something like that. And so we said, well, is this, is there a way we can automate this? And so we looked and we thought, well, we can do something like along the public private way. So between the state, you know, government and the department of health and Microsoft. So we came together with Microsoft. We said, this is what we're trying to do. And they go, oh, well, we've got this cool thing that we're already using in about 40% of the hospitals you want to take a look at that. So we did, and we could get at a snapshot what was going on across the state. And we had like within two weeks time, 11 of the 13 hospitals, major hospital systems using it. And it became our common operating picture for the state of Washington, where you could see at, at, at the daily glance where the PPE was, where the number of beds they had available, how many acute care beds, how many ICU beds, and how many ventilators they had. So, I mean, that's an example of you know, just trying to bring everybody together and using the same type of system so we could look at that and know which resources we needed to move in order to take care of the patients. Talk about taking advantage of a crisis, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> bringing, it, bringing it all together, you know, finding a way to merge the systems. And it, I think everything has a silver lining, right? And it's like giving you the opportunity to make something better. You know, obviously COVID, no thanks, don't love it. But yeah. yeah. Well, I have a question too, like, do you think we were prepared by any means for this? There are a few people who are alive today that survived the last you know, global <laughs> pandemic that yeah. we suffered. But I think that idea was like such like a sci-fi pandemic. Yeah. What? Like nobody really thought yeah. it could be real. Do you think we were prepared or were we just completely behind? And then how do you think moving forward, this will completely change and like rewire the way we think about like really public health and healthcare in general. Yeah. So you can never be too prepared, right? I mean, and we have a saying in the military that no plan, like a war, war plan, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, you know? So no matter how much planning you do, 
you never know how it's going to be until it actually happens, right? So you can never be overly prepared. We could always have been more prepared. I think that the people who in, in different counties and different states, they did what they could to bring their, their resources together and be able to mount the best type of response. But I think there are a couple of things that, that kind of got in our way. Number one, I think that we, we didn't really watch how things were moving. We didn't appreciate the spread and the speed at which, at which this was going to come to the United States. And when it did hit the United States, I think that it was really tough for people to really appreciate that, okay, it's, it's here to stay for a while and we're gonna have to do something really definitive. The other thing that I saw that, that didn't help was that it was really difficult to get to information that you had a high degree of confidence that it was accurate and that it was actionable. So there was what they call information asymmetry. You know, you'd hear one thing over here, you'd hear one here. And so, you know, I was taking my girls through, you know, here's, here's how you want to validate what you're reading. You know, you want to fact check it. You want to snopes it. You want to make sure that what you're reading is, is, is accurate before you, you make any conclusions. And then the other piece too, was that, that when we, when we had, a when we realized, okay, this, this is big, we got to do something about it. And then it was really hard for people sometimes just to concentrate on everybody pulling in the same direction. And, and so one of the things that we talked about in the state of Washington and in other places too, wasn't just why I'm just more familiar is that recognizing that what are our resources? What do we have at hand now that we can use and how do we optimize that and not wait for someone to give us the solution? How can we create our own solution? So, I mean, according to the war games that I used to do when I was in the military, we should have been much more prepared. But this is a good opportunity now to, to say, okay, what do we need to have in place? And so definitely, I know there are a lot of different groups that I've had a chance to have some conversations with, and we're really looking at it. How do we want to get prepared in the future? How do we want to handle our data? What kind of systems do we need to have in place so we can have that data interoperability? How do we want to work with each other to kind of bring all those pieces together like emergency response and public health and the hospitals and the nursing homes. How do we, how do we want to bring that? And then how do we want to take care of our, our vulnerable populations? How do we create equity in the system that we're redesigning? So we have a great crisis here, which gives us good opportunity. And I don't want to, I don't want to waste it. Yeah. Like, will, will a cough or a sneeze ever be normalized again? I don't know. Literally. <laughs> I, know. I sneezed like, in public the other day and I was like, oh no, oh my God. No, I mean, I think we're all going to be a little gun shy when we hear a cough or a sneeze. You totally. Know? Oh man. Well, we, I mean, I could literally ask you a million more questions. I think like to wrap I would like to know kind of like where we're at right now and where you maybe like see this year going when it comes to COVID and, you know, our approach, you know, some states are opening, um, numbers look good, but I know there's also like plateau, which I know last year it was like plateauing and then it surged again. I think it's just a fantastic question. I mean, I think we really have an opportunity here to get things under control and I know people are have tried really hard. I know people are very weary. They're you know they're tired of of this. But this is you know we have our one opportunity here to really try to put this in a box and make it more manageable. But we're going to have to hun kind of hunker down just a little bit longer. And you know as we loosen restrictions, we shouldn't go from like zero to sixty like in a few seconds. You know we should loosen a few at a time and see how we do. And if the numbers, you know, stay level or continue to drop, then open up a little bit more. Otherwise we're just gonna get in this endless do loop. And, you know, I'm not gonna lie. I, 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 I've been watching the variants very closely and also watching to what the, the effectiveness of vaccines because it's a race right now to see if the variants or the vaccines get to people first. So, I think, I, I mean, I'm very optimistic. I think we can do this. We've got an opportunity here, but we are all going to need to hunker down just a little bit longer until we make sure that we've really got this, you know, tamped down enough that we can control it with our, our normal, 
you know, our normal immunity and our normal safety measures, and then get closer back to what what we prefer doing and being able to see each other again and moving around yes. a little bit more freely. Please. So not without hope, but we do need a little bit more work mm, to do. Totally. Light at the end of the tunnel, but work to do. Right. All right. Exactly. Well, still a few miles left in the tunnel, but we see the light. Yes. We'll take it. Yeah. Hey, that's, that's brighter than last year. So by yes, all means. Exactly. Last year it was pitch dark. Now we see the little light. That's right. Still need to work for it. Well, thank you so much. We do want to always, if you have anything that we can push out there for you as far as like places that people can learn more, if there's any organizations we can highlight or where we can find you, we'd love to hear all of that. Well, I think that first off, I just want to thank you, you guys for what you're doing. And I mean, I just think that's really neat trying to get the information out there. So for all your folks that are, are following your your podcasts and everything, then I'd ask you to be a part of helping move us forward. And, and, you know, it's like I told my, my daughters is, is that, you know, be very thoughtful, you know, when you hear something kind of go, okay, you know, could that be true? And how do I check on that? Because we really need really informed and thoughtful people to help us continue to make progress. And we have a lot of catching up to do, and I want people to have that opportunity. So by that, I, you know, if we can all kind of pull in the same direction, I think that'd be great. And you guys keep on doing what you're doing and love, love the, the conversation. Stay tuned. We're, we're going to, we're going to continue to do some things with, with the cruise line that I'm working for. And we're, we're hoping to be able to set a model for others so that maybe they too can do things and restart things safely as well. Yes. Well, if you get like any comped cruise tickets in the future and you want to send some over i am gonna remember <laughs> definitely <laughs> hit us up like i'd be down so <laughs> okay all right you got it you got it yeah we we're happy to you know be the guinea pigs on this one <laughs> as a matter of fact you know you laugh i may be giving you a call because i, I may exactly like we actually do exactly. need guinea pigs <laughs> yes <laughs> so, <laughs> i didn't want to say that <laughs> you young spry ladies we just need you to hop on a cruise ship for a little bit for us right. thank you yeah. Yeah, that's hilarious. Pigs, but you know, I could use a few people to help me prove a point. So okay, well, We're down. hey, you you have our you have our information. I do, I do. I know how to get a hold of you. Oh, oh, I got some tea. This is an excellent little news blurb that just popped up from the Wall Street Journal. Oh my God! Breaking news, everyone. So. Republican Representative Matt Getz is under investigation for an alleged sexual relationship with an underage girl. Also, it says that investigators are examining whether Mr. Getz, a close ally of former President Donald Trump, violated federal sex trafficking laws as well. And those laws, by the way, it says here, make it illegal to coerce someone younger than 18 to travel across state lines to engage in sex in exchange for money or something else of value. T. You guys, I think this was like literally dropped from the gods into our laps, like literally just now. I'm not kidding. We are just about to go into top stories. And me and Sam both get the same news notification on our lock screen. And it's just spilling tea for us all today. I can say it's shout out to the Wall Street Journal and Eliza Collins and Christina Peterson, who are the contributors for this article, because, <laughs> like, your timing is impeccable. This is a developing story, and we will definitely keep tabs on this. Definitely keep an eye on it. May he get all the justice served to him, because this is heinous. Heinous. But actually, that's that's a perfect segue, because we're about to talk about justice. True justice, well, we hope, will be served. Because this next story, we are talking about kind of the the big story of the week, which is the trial of Derek Chauvin, who is the murderer, alleged at this point, but let's be real, of George Floyd. So as we know, George Floyd, last May, a video circulated online showing police officer Derek Chauvin holding his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck in Minneapolis. And his death, you know, obviously ultimately spurred these nationwide, actually, literally international protests, actually. (laughs) That's New York Times. Let me edit this for you because international protests over this murder. And 
you know, obviously just created like a massive civil rights movement ultimately that ended up changing things from public monuments to sports teams names. Like we know what happened last summer. And so now we are finally, you know, at the trial of Derek Chauvin, which is, you know, set to kind of go on through this month as he faces charges of manslaughter, second degree murder and third degree murder. So this week it kicked off on Monday. So kind of the main things that are happening right now really pertain to jury selection, which I think is going to be obviously crucial in this case due to the fact that so many people had their eyes on this, not only when it happened, but for the months afterwards and everything that happened. Man, how do you get an impartial juror on this case? That's tough. So basically, the jury for the murder trial has been seated, clearing the way for opening arguments in the trial that began Monday. So the 12-member jury includes two white men, four white women, three black men, one black woman, and two women who identify as mixed race. And so... There are also two white women and a white man who are the alternate jurors. So, again, as we know, this murder set off all those protests So that ultimately led to this large mass movement of like civil rights since the 1960s. So the racial makeup of the jury was super important and very closely watched. So basically, though, in Hennepin County, it basically the population is like whiter than Minneapolis and has grown more so during the pandemic. So... That would also makes the selection of the jury kind of more interesting to watch. But the jury will actually be more diverse than Minneapolis, which is 20% black. So basically, the Minnesota rules of criminal procedure say that the alternates will be the last three jurors, jurors chosen. Those two white women and a white man in his 20s who was questioned on Tuesday, only two of them will be seated when the trial begins. And so from the start, many worried that it would be impossible to seat an impartial jury, like we said, like after literally the most massive movement, I mean, we've ever seen in our lifetimes probably. Basically, prospective jurors were asked about answers they provided on a 14-page questionnaire that asked like their views on a wide range of topics, including obviously like Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, whether the criminal justice system is racially racially discriminatory. And so those who expressed opinions on that, which is like, wouldn't everyone have opinions on that? Like, right? Like, literally, like, there's no, whether it's, like, one way or another, like, you have an opinion. You're not just, like, neutral. Yeah. Or, like, do you live under a rock? So, those who expressed opinions said that they could set them aside and rule according to evidence presented at the trial. So, the jury selection was set to take three weeks, and jurors had already been chosen. Jurors that had already been chosen had to be called back in question again after the city announced $27 million settlement with the Mr. Floyd's family. So when that happened, they also had to kind of like go back and double check some of these jurors to see how they felt about that. Because in a lot of ways, that kind of like highlights potential guilt for Derek Chauvin, which, as you know, regardless of what your opinions are, when you go into a trial, it has to be impartial and unbiased. So that settlement, you know, that could have swayed people's opinion on whether he was guilty or not, since... 27 million that's a lot that must mean you know obviously someone's guilty here so yeah it's interesting I don't know much about jury selection I have never done jury duty but I mean what a trial to be a part of if you you get selected for jury duty and this is the one like so monumental but definitely gonna be a story to watch for weeks to come and we'll definitely keep everyone updated but We're in the early stages and we'll see what happens, but definitely hope and pray that justice will be served. I guess we should talk about Georgia. Yes. I guess. Like it just, you know. Uh, So here uh. we go again. (laughs) I literally, I would just like to say like, I, I mean, look, Georgia's a hot spot, but it is funny that the peach state has literally become the hottest topic I get my peaches out in Georgia. Georgia's on our mind. Georgia runoffs, like, we really can't escape Georgia. My roommate's moving to Georgia in two weeks. Like, what? Honestly, I just feel like an Instagram caption is waiting to happen now that I'm, like, aware of this situation. (laughs) Okay, so now that, like, 
you know, Georgia, peaches, peaches, Georgia. This is what's happening in the peach state. So Georgia is being sued for a third time, and hopefully, you know, third time's the charm. We always love that. And civil rights groups have really intensified their legal fight against these new voting restrictions. So this is the, like I said, third federal lawsuit. Then, on the corporate side, Atlanta-based corporations, so Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, there are a few others, but, you know, just to keep those top of mind, where you fly and what you drink, have continued to face boycott calls from activists who say they need to do more to oppose the law, which we could go on a tangent about corporate money, etc., but we won't at this point. Basically, this Republican-backed law, which Governor Brian Kemp signed last week, strengthened identification requirements for absentee ballots, gave lawmakers the power to take over local elections, ew, sharply limited the use of ballot drop boxes, shortened early voting periods for runoffs, and, and this is, whew, this is lit, made it a misdemeanor for members of the public to offer food and water to voters waiting in line, which really just seems not great in such a, a hot state, but you know. No one asked me, did they? The lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court in Atlanta late on Monday called the law racially discriminatory and an attack on democracy itself. Then the ACLU, of course, is involved, as they are with pretty much all of these major federal lawsuits, commented, so... We stand. We definitely stand. We stand the ACLU. They literally, like, they do God's work fully. Geniuses, brilliant minds, working 24 hours a day, 365 days. And they also have somehow made time to make a comment. So this was what they released on this particular predicament. They said, this law is voter suppression, plain and simple, and aimed at making it harder for black and brown and other historically disenfranchised communities to have a voice in our democracy. Is absolutely shameful in response to a historic participation by these communities in the last election cycle. The state already faces two other similar lawsuits brought by civil rights groups over the law. So there's a lot going on here. Everyone's suing everyone. We're a very sue-happy country, so I'm not surprised. Honestly, like, God bless suing in this particular case. God bless it, for sure. I mean, couldn't tell you how necessary these lawsuits are, and I just hope they are successful because what is happening in Georgia is seriously, seriously scary. Okay, well, next story is regarding the White House announcing new measures to counter anti-Asian violence. So this is pretty exciting news as far as just the urgency on this issue. And the spike in hate crimes has been seen since March 2020 when then-President Donald Trump began referring to the novel coronavirus as the China virus in other super derogatory terms. And so Biden's new steps, again, include that $49.5 million of pandemic relief funds for community-based, culturally-specific services and programs for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, as well as a new task force dedicated to countering xenophobia against Asians in healthcare. And then the Justice Department is also planning new efforts to enforce hate crime laws and report data on racial crimes. So good urgency, good response to this really like disheartening and frustrating issue. And, you know, I think there was, there's been literally more of these hate crimes today I've seen on social media that literally like rocked my whole day. It was just the most disgusting, vile video I've ever seen in my life. So it's just really hard to see and but i'm glad that you know we have an administration that's taking such urgent action on this issue so but we also want to give you guys some tools as well just to like be aware of to be armed with we have links in both girl on the gov and girl on the gov the podcast instagrams that provide a whole whole list of action items uh, a full resource card which is provided by asians for anti-racism which is a really really great account as well so within that link you'll find organizations to donate to you'll also find a link to stop api hate so please please get in touch with them if you see anything hear anything and there are some other organizations on there as well to get in touch with to understand sort of what's going on and of course a full list of articles that explain some of the things that are happening around this issue so that link will also live in the episode description so easy access either way another kind of tough news story another tough issue that is out there but action items you can take so we definitely need everyone 
get out there, do your part. But do you want to do the next story, Sam? We got one more story on the docket. We do. And this is honestly like, this is good news. And basically, women have been dominating Biden's first slate of judicial nominees. So we stand. We love this. Obviously, Women Empowerment Moment in Women's History Month, which I can't believe is coming to an end. And in this, President Joe Biden, that guy, you know, a little guy that lives at the White House, he released his first slate of 11 federal judicial nominations on Tuesday, and nine of them were women of diverse backgrounds, including several Black candidates and an Asian woman as well. And just as a quick explainer to, as you may or may not know, we have different levels of the court. There's district court, court of appeals, Supreme Court, etc. And the president is actually responsible for appointing judges to those seats. So obviously the most kind of exemplary example <laughs> of this is Supreme Court nominees. We saw, remember when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, Trump immediately appointed somebody. So they hold a lot of weight and regardless of what level it's at so it's exciting to see you know diverse judges being appointed especially being such a harsh stark contrast to joe biden's predecessor and some of the appointments he made again it's not even just about diversity of identity but diversity of thought and people from different backgrounds so this is exciting to see but again just a reminder you know, the president appoints judges to courts across the land. So that's what's happening here. But before you guys go, we definitely want to highlight a brand that we love, small business. We do. We do and love this one. Like literally the cutest stuff, you guys. I just got my roommate the clear glass mug. By the way, I've been like wanting clear glass mugs for so long and so solely sisterhood really came through with the cutest mugs you guys i got my roommate one she's moving she's got a promotion she's moving across the country and i got her the mug that says manifest that shit and she loved it she cried like definitely great gifts but also i'm definitely buying one for myself but like to the point of the clear mugs same i just right like kendall jenner has clear mugs so i want clear mugs exactly and they're just freaking chic they're so cute i have the manifest this shit and the present is female and like it's just a little mix and match situation like what mood am i in like i'm probably in both moods at the same time but, like am i with my crystals am i manifesting or am mm-hmm. i in a feminist you know fuck the patriarchy type mood you know and then you just double fist. Like you have one <laughs> in each hand and you like, you hydrate, you get a little water in one, you get a little iced coffee in the other. I really like health and wellness podcast because that seems like a, some really good advice by you. But yeah, so, but we actually have a discount code for everybody. If you guys go check out Solely Sisterhood at solelysisterhood.com, we will put the link in the episode description for this for you guys. But you can go and use our discount code for 15% off at checkout. So head there, go check them out, check out their stuff, and you can use code GIRLINTHEGOV15 for 15% off your purchase. But that is it for this week. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review. Have you followed us on Instagram? Have you seen our TikToks? Have you told your friends yet about us? And like your coworkers, honestly, like your mom, your dad, your uncle, your cousins, your cousin's cousin, second cousins, third cousins, once removed, once removed, your step cousins. You know, Mm, those are critical, critical. Mm -hmm. Gotta have the step cousins. Yep. But that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. And we will see you guys next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.